All right, so we are in this uh, series called Panic Button. We're talking about fear. And uh, in the course of the study for this, I found out something that I didn't know um, about the commands that are in the Bible. And the, the command that we hear or that we read more often, uh, it was kind of a surprise to me. Because I presumed that the command uh, that would be the most common in Scripture would be something like love one another, right? Or maybe be holy as I'm holy. But no, you want to know what the, 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 the most common command is in the Bible? Be strong and courageous. Yeah, I, I had no idea. I was like, huh, that's interesting. Now, I don't know what the numbers are or anything like that, but I'd read from a couple of different sources that, yeah, that was the, the most common of all of the, <clears throat> of all of the commands. In fact, uh, we see it uh, quite a bit in Joshua chapter 1 as Israel is getting ready to take uh, the promised land that God has given them. Um, Joshua uh, is, is given this message by God. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. And then he goes on like two, three more times, be strong and courageous. Did I not tell you? Be strong and courageous. And when they went and they attacked the city of Ai and they lost, Joshua kind of tears his garments and he's before the Lord. And God's like, didn't I tell you just to be strong and courageous? <laughs> it's just kind of this duh sort of moment. And we, we find it throughout the Old Testament. Even some of the, the kings would tell their sons, be strong and courageous. But we even find it in the, the New Testament. Uh, the, the author Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Interesting, huh? So we find this idea of being strong and courageous threaded throughout the entire the entire Bible. And, and keep in mind something, and this is, this is something that I have to remind myself of over and over again, that God understands my fears. And, and fear is a, an emotion that God gave to us like all of the other emotions. Now, let that sink in for a minute, because most of us, we get this idea of fear as being this bad thing that we don't, we don't, we don't want to be afraid, and no, we don't want to be afraid, but Fear is very much uh, uh, an emotion given to us by God to help us understand how the world is unfolding in front of us. Does that make sense? That it's, it's something that's God-given. He's never going to take away this concept of fear. Now, what you do with the fear, he can certainly help you with that. But fear is an emotion that's built into us for a particular reason. And uh, fear, I guess, the best way to describe it is it tells us something. Very much like pain in your body is your body's way of saying, hey, something's wrong. You probably ought to pay attention to this. Fear is the same way. There's something going on in front of you that you need to pay attention to. And so we talked last week about this real helpful framework. Here it is. Again, um, kind of this five-level different types of fear. We all have a fear of, of death. We all have a fear of pain and suffering. Um, usually we don't want to die through pain and suffering, right? And then um, fear of loss of control, fear of rejection, and then finally a fear of shame and humiliation. And, and last week we talked about uh, pretty much the, 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 the bottom two of this, this idea of being a fear of death and the fear of pain and suffering. And, 
And today I want to kind of switch and talk about some of the, the other ones, this idea of fear of rejection and fear of shame and, and humiliation. And There are some fears that are subtle. They're, they're things that don't regularly um, show up. Like you can tell when someone is afraid of 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 something physical because their body starts doing things. In my case, when it comes to heights, I freeze, as I uh, demonstrated for you last <laughs> last week. Um, but maybe you have some fears. I have a friend. His name is Big Brian. Big Brian makes me look small. He's a very big dude, hence the name Big Brian. Until he sees a spider, screams like a little girl. It is the funniest thing to watch. I was uh, with him one day. Uh, we went to a movie, and um, there was an, an advertisement. I'll never forget this. Uh, there was this advertisement for a movie. This was probably 10, 15 years ago, called Eight-Legged Freaks. Okay, real B movie, I'm telling you. But it's obviously about these giant spiders. I'm sure he's looking at me funny, but it's about these, these giant spiders. I'm sitting next to Big Brian. Okay, now, Big Brian is named Big Brian for a particular reason. But when he saw that on the screen, I have never seen anybody go over the top of his seat and duck for cover so fast in all my life. You want to talk about a physical reaction when it comes to fear. Even though it's on a screen, it didn't, it didn't matter. It was hysterical. I still remember that. And by the way, when I talk to him the next time, I am going to tell him, yes, you are a sermon illustration, and yes, I did tell the story about it like it freaks. So anyway, <clears throat> poor Brian. When we, when we uh, are dealing with things like fear, sometimes those symptoms of fear are very obvious, but there are other fears that are a lot more subtle. And um, Sometimes these fears are, are very difficult to even um, detect within ourselves because they are so subtle. There are things that are happening inside our person and, and we're so used to them, we don't even recognize that it is fear uh, and yet it's still shaping and influencing the decisions that we make, and we all have these. We all have certain cues, we have certain triggers, and we all tend to want to avoid that inner pain of rejection and humiliation. And so what I wanted to do today is I wanted to talk about that, just to, to try to, to deal with that, because you know, as Christians, if fear is one of these things that God gave us, then one of the questions we have to ask is, okay, what do we do with it, and God, how do you help us um, to, to deal with this? Because the thing that I've noticed Fear is one of those things that will keep you out of the game. It will keep you on the bench. It will keep you from doing the things that, that you could do to be all that God wants you to be. And it's not necessarily, it's not always just the physical things that you're afraid of. It's the mental battles that go on with our minds. And some of you are shaking your head because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because either you've experienced it yourself or you have seen somebody who has experienced it. And so to do that, I want to turn to the, to the, to the letter uh, to the Romans uh, today. This is uh, a letter written by this missionary named Paul to a group of Christians gathered in Rome, the capital city, obviously, of the Roman Empire. We're going to be in Romans chapter 
8, if you have a Bible. Um, we're going to start there, and then we're going to move around a little bit. But now, let me explain a little bit um, about this letter. So, first of all, Paul did not, um, fi- um, did not start this church. Uh, he started a lot of churches within um, the, the Mediterranean region, but the church in Rome was not directly founded by him. But he knew a lot of the people who did help start it, and and that church was was one of those places where there was a lot of influential people going in and out because it was the capital city. And so when he writes this letter, he's writing it from the sense that he wants to go visit, but he hasn't had the chance to do that. And we have this notion that it's probably a fairly large church, a fairly influential church at the time. And um, when he writes this letter, there is a ton of theology. Most of Paul's theology we find uh, wrapped up in Romans. Now, obviously, we find bits and pieces of it in, uh, in other uh, of his letters, but really, this is kind of his, it's kind of his work. I mean, this, this is his thing. If you want to understand Paul, you need to understand, understand Romans. Now, here's the caution, though. Paul has this real ambling type of style because he can be talking about some point in theology and then all of a sudden break out and so praise be to God who did all this and Jesus. And so you get these little trails off and sometimes you kind of got to wade your way through that in order to find what that central theology is. Does that make sense? You know, and there's, there's just a lot of stuff packed into this book. There are PhDs written on just a couple of verses in Romans. I mean, it's just, there's just so much, there's just so much to it. Um, back when I was in seminary, uh, there was a, a book published um, by uh, two men at my seminary. Uh, it was called Why I Am Not a Calvinist, uh, written by uh, Joe Dongel and Jerry Walls. And uh, Jerry Walls was a um, professor of, of uh, philosophy, and Joe Dongel was a, a professor of, of biblical studies. And I had them, the, the same semester the book dropped, uh, I had them back-to-back for classes. I had Joe Dongel for Romans, and I had Jerry Walls for, for philosophy of Christian religion right after that. I have never been so exhausted in all of my life when it comes to, to academics. And I just remember going through parts of this book with, with Dr. Donjil and just thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this is so dense. How does anyone get through it? Well, obviously, we couldn't get through it in a semester. So uh, you got bits and pieces of it. And fortunately, we had a PhD to kind of help us you know, tease out some of those ideas. So bear in mind that anytime you tackle the book of Romans, there is a lot of things that are going on, and often you have to widen your scope within the book in order to understand it, and that's what we're going to do today. So I want to I wanna start with uh, this verse, Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Which is, I'm really glad we sang that song because that song comes from this particular verse. And this is one of those verses that's really good if you want to put it on a refrigerator magnet or you want to put it on a bumper sticker. Because it, you, just, you just have this verse and you, 
There's a lot of stuff in there, and, and it talks about fear, and none of us want to deal with fear. And so anytime we, we find those kinds of passages within the scripture, we, we tend to hang on to them, especially if we're going through a difficult moment in our life. And that it's a, it's a great, um, great comfort, I think, to, to all of us. Now, what's interesting is that anytime um, we have a verse, uh, we have to remember that it comes from somewhere. It comes from a different language. Um, the New Testament was not written in the King James English. I hate to tell you that. It was good enough for Jesus. It's good enough for me. No, he did not speak in King James. It was actually written in Greek. And, and when somebody goes to the, the Greek text and translate it, or it translates it, they have to make certain decisions about how they're going to translate it. This is out of the NIV, New International Version, and it conveys the idea very well, but I want to show you a, a, a little more of a, a, a direct translation of this verse. Here it is. <clears throat> For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with a new international uh, translation of this. But you can see that there's the, this parallel that Paul is trying to put across. You have not received a spirit of slavery, but you have received a spirit of adoption. And the two things are, are set against each other. Does that make sense? So we, we see this in here. And, and the thing to remember is that slaves are not sons. And we're going to talk about that more in, in a little bit. However, when we start talking about this thing called slavery, a whole bunch of, of things come to mind. Just our notion of what, what slavery is. Uh, there are some cultural things, some things from American history that get put in there. But we have to ask ourselves, what is Paul actually talking about? And we have to put this within the context of the book. Remember, like I said, sometimes we have to zoom out, especially in the book of Romans, so that we really understand what Paul is saying. So if you are a Bible scholar, you are loving this right now, okay? Uh, now, so hopefully I'm going to help you out, and if, if it's a little muddled, we're going to get there. So st stick with me, because I think this is important. To understand the context of this idea of slavery, we actually have to go back to chapter 7. Okay, and here's, here's the verse in chapter 7. Verse 14, Paul says, We know that the law, meaning the law of God, is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. We just sang about that, right? I know that God's law is spiritual, but I'm not. In fact, the word in Greek for unspiritual here actually means flesh. That's spiritual, I'm flesh, and this flesh is sold into slavery. You tracking with me so far? Okay, so we have this, and he goes on to kind of explain what this means. Verse 15, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. How many of you can say amen to that? 
right? I mean, this, this is about as real as it, as it gets. And then he goes on in, in verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, hit the pause button and think about who's writing this. This is Paul. This is Paul. This is the man who founded church after church, who was saved rather dramatically on the road to Damascus. This is the guy who more or less shaped Christianity, uh, at least in its its Gentile form, its non-Jewish form. This is Paul. And Paul's saying, that's spiritual, I'm flesh, and I'm a wretched man. And I keep screwing up. So brother or sister, you're in good company. If you're feeling like, why is it that I keep doing the things I don't want to do? And the stuff that I know I ought to do, I don't want to do that. Why is that? You're in good company. And Paul understands and he begins to write these words for us to identify that this is common to all human beings. It's a very powerful message, I think. He finishes in verse 25. On one hand, I am serving the law of God with my mind, but on the other hand, I am serving the law of sin with my flesh. Both of those things are happening simultaneously in me. And this is Paul. Let that sink in. This is Paul who's writing this. And he gets it. I think all of us have experienced this kind of, um, this battle in, in some way. Usually it shows up in temptation, doesn't it? We're tempted to, to, you know, pursue some things that are probably not good for us or to say something or to lash out or something that's painful to someone else. Maybe we're tempted to, to envy someone else's position or whatever it happens to be. However, over the years, I've, I've noticed that there's another battle that's waged within the flesh, and it's the one I want to talk about today. And the temptation, if I were going to describe it in, in kind of combat imagery, I would say temptation is, is a hot battle. It's one of those things where you are feeling it, and you can, you can hear the temptation whizzing by, and you just, mm. But there's also this cold war that happens within the shadows of our minds. And, and it's the one that I think is so subtle, and I think it's the one that's more damaging, quite honestly. And it really has to do with the kinds of things that we believe about ourselves as people. In, in my experience, most people that I come in contact with have something in their past that they're not proud of. They really wish that it didn't happen or that at the very least nobody else would find out about it. And because of whatever that thing was in their past, they honestly wonder, can God still love me? And it's very real. 
They can even be churchgoers and Christians and still have that question in their mind. There's this thing, I just can't shake it. Can God still love me because of that? It's a very real thing. The, the other place that I notice, and I think it's the older I get and the more people that I meet that I realize how prevalent, or prevalent this, this is, is we have these messages that we tell ourselves. It's called self-talk. And we all do it. We have these ongoing conversations and, and the messages, for whatever reason, aren't always positive. And they can be installed in your, your mental software by, say, a traumatic event that happened when, when you were a child or, or maybe it was a parent or a sibling or a friend or a family member who said something to you and that gets replayed over and over in your head for whatever, whatever reason. And eventually, it's not their voice, it's your voice. And you hear your voice saying the same message. And this is a common phenomenon with all human beings. And we have these messages, these recordings. And, and it's so subtle, but the place where I know, notice it, it, it comes out is when we do something wrong. And the first thing that explodes out of our mouths is something like, I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid. Really? What's going on in your head that makes you say that? And some of us verbally abuse ourselves. A friend of mine, um, I heard him say this. And I, I looked at him and I said, you realize, of course, that if I heard any other person say that to you, I'd probably go punch him out. Stop it. And we do this. We have this ongoing conversation in our heads. And, and over time, we hear this message and we actually believe it and we wonder if there's something so fundamentally wrong with us and we ask ourselves very quietly, very much in the shadows, very much inside, am I, am I lovable? Can, can God actually love me if I'm so screwed up? Now you may not, you may not verbalize that, but it's in the background. And we play it over and over and over again. It's like a bad movie. And my friends, it's time for you to leave the theater. It's time to go see a new film. It's time not to allow yourself to get caught in that rut of watching the same thing. Look, you are not seatbelt in to the, to the actual chair in the movie theater. It's time to get out of that. Well, great, David glad. I, I'm just happy to leave this theater. Tell me where the exit is. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to show you where the exit is. We can actually find it in Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now remember, the end of, 
of chapter seven. Oh, what a wretched man am I. Who is going to save me? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. Those recurring negative thoughts almost always are condemning. And, and they usually surround um, a couple of, of uh, features. I'm not good enough. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not skilled enough. Whatever it is, I'm not enough. And because of that, there's something fundamentally wrong with me and I am unlovable. That's a condemning thought. You see? Right? It's a condemning thought. But Romans 8, verse 1 says, there's no condemnation in Christ. So let me just state it right out here in the open. You heard it here, and you can quote me on this. If you are having a condemning thought and you are a follower of Jesus, it is not from God. If, if that message in your head that tells you that you are not something that you ought to be compared to everybody else and you are condemned for it, that is not the voice of God. Okay? It's not. So let's just deal with that. Now, you may still have it playing in your head, but the, the point is that is not God. That's your own voice. And in fact, one of the things that we find in the scriptures, is the name for Satan actually comes from a Hebrew word called hasatan, and it means the accuser, the accuser of the brethren. And so when we have those condemning thoughts, and this is exactly what, what happens, is that we get tempted to do something, and the devil says, I gotcha, and I'm gonna make you feel bad about it too. Does that make sense? It's this condemning thought that we have, but there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Now, here, here's, the, here's a little bit of a difference, and this is the thing we need to think about the most. Just because there's no condemnation in Christ does not mean that there is no consequence. Now, think about that. You can make a decision, and it may not be the best decision in the world. God's not going to condemn you for it, but it doesn't mean that, you don't, that you're not going to live with a consequence, because you are. And, and that's not the end of the world. I mean, you can make that decision. You can, you can do that thing, and it may put you in a one-down position, and you may not like it, but the point is that there's no condemnation for it. In fact, we serve a God who redeems even death. And the point of the consequence is, yes, God can still work through that. It may not be what you prefer. It may not be what you like. It may not be a whole lot of fun. But the point is, there's no condemnation, and God will never leave you and will never forsake you. Pretty cool. Oh, that sounds like good news to me, by the way. Here's the other thing it doesn't mean. No condemnation does not mean no conviction. You can feel convicted in your heart, but let me show you what the difference is. A condemning thought is, oh, you're so stupid, or you're so unskilled. That's a condemning thought. But in my experience, when it's the voice of God, it's never, oh, you're so bad. It's always, oh, David, I got something better for you. And sometimes he has to show it to me in, in, in vivid detail where 
this is the, the negative thing, this is the thing that I've been settling for, and this is so much better, and it feels like, oh, you got to be kidding, I made that mistake again. And it happens to every one of us, but the conviction is, oh, there's something better than what you're settling for. That's not a condemning thought. Now, you might feel bad about it, and you go, oh, man, why did I do that? That, that can happen, but the point is, it, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but there may be conviction by the Holy Spirit that there is something better for you. Are you tracking with me? There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but there may be consequences and there may be conviction. There is always something better, and so we land right back where we started. Romans 8, verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. By the way, this word Abba, really interesting word. It was the word that Jesus used to, to describe God. It's Aramaic, and the best translation is Papa. It's a very familiar term. And I grew up in a Lutheran church where they wore big robes and stoles around their neck. God bless them, okay? They did all that. And it was thy Lord. May we find thee and the common everyday things of and there was these and thous and thines and thises and thats and, and, and all of and I. And it was really funny because I knew Pastor Gary. Pastor Gary was my pastor, and Pastor Gary taught my Sunday school class and my catechism class, and, and he talked like a regular guy until he started talking to Jesus. It was a little odd, <laughs> right? He started using this other language, and, and I actually grew up thinking that was speaking in tongues. So, you know. <laughs> Jesus used this word Abba, which is very familiar. It was almost offensive to the Pharisees at the time because they treated God as being something wholly other, and Jesus was like, no, we're, we're connected here. That's what sonship is. And there is nothing quite like um, your kids, you know, calling you mommy or daddy. I mean, that's, there's something very familiar about that. The spirit you have received brought about your adoption to sonship and sons and daughters are not slaves. They're very different. And so my, my message for you today is simply this. Don't fear condemnation because it's not from God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. God loves you. God loves you right where you are, warts and all. All of the junk and foolishness of your past, all of the foolishness you'll probably do in the future, God loves you right where you're at. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. Why? Because God is love. And therefore, he loves you perfectly. Are you, are you unlovable? Mm -mm. You're completely lovable. God loves you enough to adopt you as a son or a daughter. 
Wow. Boy, that's good news. And, and here's the message for the church. People only understand that God loves them when we love them. We are the hands and feet of Jesus, and therefore, we have to embrace people right where they're at, even though they may not look like us. They might not believe the same things that we do. The point is, is that people will, will belong before they'll believe. And we want to make sure that it's like you, you, you belong here. Now, we have a phrase here, come as you are. Don't stay that way because we think God has something for each one of us. Everybody has another step to take in their discipleship. But the point is we have to start with where they are. Why? Because God started with you right where you were. Hopefully you're not that same person today because of, of God's grace and love in your life, but we need to extend that to other people and we have to have a tremendous amount of grace for other people where they're at. Does that make sense? Because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Not only do we not take the condemnation, but brothers and sisters, we don't give condemnation. 